Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a copy of your scriptures, I invite you to find Ruth chapter 4, where we will be this morning as we're concluding our fall series entitled Neighboring, where we have been meditating on what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you were with us, we spent September and October in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this morning, we are wrapping up our four-week study of the book of Ruth And we get ready to move into Advent, and if you haven't been outside, it is snowing. I had to take a deep breath, gather myself, and come back. Okay, come back with me, sorry. Neighboring series, uh, as we're wrapping that up, I I just want to share with you, it's been so encouraging to hear uh, so many stories from many of you as to how the Lord has been taking our time together, meditating on this topic, and how he's taking that and, and shaping us by that. He's, he's giving us eyes to see uh, people around us in a different way. He's growing in us this compassion and love to share it with those around us. And we've heard many stories uh, from many of you and, and experienced some of that ourselves as well. And it's just been a joy to hear those. And I encourage you, keep sharing those stories. And if you haven't done that, uh, take some time this afternoon at lunch with friends or family uh, or at your community group next time you meet or uh, whoever you talk to. And just take a few moments just to share the ways that the Lord is, is giving you a love for your neighbor and shaping you to, to be uh, more and more like him as one who loves uh, our neighbor as ourselves. Um, just because we're hearing all of these amazing stories doesn't mean it's, it's all pretty, right? Uh, it's not all roses and sunshine uh, and going really well. There's a lot of, uh, I, I can tell you even firsthand that walking through this series has given me more and more opportunities, more than I even was aware of, opportunities to come back to the Lord and confess my need of him, to confess my lack of love uh, for my neighbor and to, and to repent of the small little heart, selfish heart that I have um, and that repentance is a gift. That repentance is not something to, to run away from and be scared of. Uh, acknowledging and realizing uh, your own lack of love for your neighbor is actually a beautiful opportunity to return to Christ. Because when we turn to Christ, we have confidence that we don't receive judgment, we actually receive grace. We receive love and compassion. And by that, he transforms us to make us more and more like him. And so what ends up happening is the more we step out and, and find ourselves in need of him as we try to love our neighbors, the more we return to Christ. And as we return to Christ, we receive his love and compassion, which then enables us and equips us and gives us a desire to go back to our neighbors and to try and to love. And then guess where that leads us? Back to Christ. And it just continues. And, and that's the beautiful uh, gift of repentance that the Lord provides for us. And this morning we are concluding our time in Ruth. And if you uh, hopefully are there in Ruth chapter 4, um, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, um, you know that the story of Ruth doesn't actually begin with Ruth. It begins with a woman named Naomi who is married to a man named Elimelech who experiences some, some famine. And they end up actually leaving the promised land. And they go to Moab with their two sons. And their two sons are married then to two foreign women. And tragedy strikes. And Naomi's husband and both of her sons die. And everything's going awful for her. Things are not going well. And there's only one little bright spot of hope, and that's her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who in chapter 1 gives this beautiful expression of love uh, and, and commitment to Naomi when she says that, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. This beautiful picture of love, as Pastor Bill taught last week, hesed, this Hebrew idea of love that is unrestricted, sacrificial, one way, 
It is, is covenantal and binding that says, no matter how you respond, I'm going to love you. I commit myself to you, as author Paul Miller describes, it's a love without an exit strategy. Beautiful love, and it's, it's this love that is a theme throughout all of Ruth. And so Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem because the Lord has brought food there again. But these women have a massive problem because in this patriarchal society, they are widowed and childless, which means they are without protection and provision. So they're in trouble, big trouble. They, they have no heir to carry on the family name, and, Ruth, and Naomi excuse me, is bitter. And she says, don't call me Naomi because Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. But life is incredibly difficult. Then we meet this man named Boaz, who is a relative, who is one who can legally step in and care for the needs of the family. And so at one night, at the direction of her mother-in-law, Ruth goes to Boaz at night and essentially proposes marriage to him. Says, will you cover us? Will you provide for us and protect us? Will you redeem us? And Boaz says, I will do for you all you ask, but there's one ahead of me in line, essentially. He has the right to claim this responsibility and to step in and provide redemption and provision first. So let's find out what happens then, where we are in Ruth chapter 4. And if you're there, uh, we're going to read the first couple of verses. There's a lot in this chapter that's going to sound really strange at times. Uh, it's very foreign culturally, and some of the things that take place just are going to be challenging for us to really understand what's going through. So we're going to take it kind of slow and just walk our way uh, through it. And even after studying for Many, many hours. There's still a lot in here that doesn't make too much sense to me, but we're going to do our best to, to make sense of it together. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took the ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Just pause there for a second because there's a couple things that are really important in this front couple of verses to, to make sense of. And the first one is really important that we know what this guardian redeemer is. Pastor Bill mentioned it briefly last week. Um, some of your translations, or if you grew up in the church, you might know this as the kinsman redeemer. Um, but we need to kind of understand what that is. So keep your finger in Ruth and turn back with me, if you would, to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 is going to show us a little bit of the background, the heart of God in which he set up in his law a way to provide for People in the, the Israelites who faced difficulty and disaster, and he provided for them by the redemption of the land through family, through the nearest of kin, if you can kind of connect where the kinsman redeemer comes from. Leviticus 25, verse 24 and 25 say this, Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. And he explains what that is. He says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So imagine an Israelite falls on difficult times for whatever reason, and they need help. It's actually the responsibility and the privilege of the nearest male relative who has resources available to step in and buy that land either directly from their family member so that it stays in the family, or buy it from whoever they might have already sold it to, to buy it back, to keep it as part of the family, so that when things turn around, there's now land and there's provision and the family's not homeless and they're able to be provided for. And it's the redemption of their next of kin, redeeming the land to make that possible. And the one who had the ability to do that was the kinsman or guardian redeemer. What's really cool about this is this is much bigger than just property, right? 
This is actually the same title. The Hebrew word for, Hebrew, uh, for kinsman or guardian redeemer is the same title that's given to God when he goes in and he buys out and he redeems Israel in Exodus chapter 6, when he goes and rescues them. This is the heart of God really throughout all of Scripture, and it's a huge theme in the book of Ruth. So Boaz goes to the town gate because he's looking for this guardian redeemer, this one who's next in line. And he's going to the town gate because at the town gate is where all the important business takes place. There would be places like this along the entrance to the, uh, to the city gate where business would take place, where elders would gather and make rulings on, on, on uh, issues of justice and, and conflict and whatever. They would deal with, this was the courthouse essentially. So Boaz goes to the courthouse because he has this need, the redemption of Ruth and Naomi and their property. And it says that he came out and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Do you remember uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in Ruth chapter 2 when Ruth went to glean, when she went to gather food from another uh, a field, and it just so happened that she ended up on Boaz's land? It's the same idea here. Boaz goes to sit down at the city gate just as so happens that the guardian redeemer he's looking for comes by at the same time, which of course we know is not coincidental. It's not, oh wow, look at that, that's amazing. But this is the sovereign providing hand of God to bless his people that God is behind the scenes in this. He's not, he's not moving and caring for his people in the big flashy way, but in subtle little behind the scenes moves in which he's providing uh, for his people. And so Boaz is sitting there, and here comes, here comes the, the relative, the guardian redeemer, and he says, hey, come over here, my friend. Sounds like a normal greeting to us. You might say that to somebody, hey, friend, how are you? He's not actually calling him friend. It's, it's a weird Hebrew idiom that is hard to translate. It's not necessarily, hey, friend. Other commentators will describe it as, hey, Mr. So-and-so, or hey, Mr. Nobody, or John Doe or um, Mr. Smith, Mr. No-Name, essentially. And we don't get that because, well, we don't understand Hebrew, right? And so what's going on here is it's, it's kind of this little dig at this man. This guy who was first in line, had the first right and responsibility to redeem Naomi and Ruth, doesn't even get a name, and in a time where names mean everything, right? We learned before that Bethlehem means house of bread, which is ironic because they ran out of bread. Um, Naomi says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, call me Mara. In a, in a time when names mean everything, this guy doesn't get a name. He gets called Mr. So-and-so. And that's on purpose. Not necessarily to jab at this guy and tear him down as much as it is to contrast him with Boaz. So think of it this way. Here comes Mr. So-and-so, and there's Boaz. You can kind of hear that in the text. It's kind of like this, ooh, there's Boaz, but here's Mr. John Doe, right? That's the emphasis here. The emphasis is on who Boaz is. Boaz, throughout this entire book, has been lifted up as this example of what a real man is, what a real neighbor should be, what really a king should be like. So Boaz gathers all the elders around of the town into this spot in the city gate and a crowd starts to form because business is about to go down. So everybody gets out their smartphones and gets ready to tweet what's going on. Um, chapter 4, uh, picking up in verse 3. 
Then he, Boaz, said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Kind of one of these, if you were paying attention to Boaz's tone and what, how he would talk throughout the, speak throughout the entire book, it's always this over-the-top, amazing language. And here it's like, down to business. So you need to redeem this property. And the guy, Mr. So-and-so, goes, hey, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day that you redeem the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, earlier in times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. And so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. A lot of weird stuff going on here, right? <laughs> People taking off their shoes, don't know what's going on. So let's, let's kind of step back here and see if we can figure out a little bit of what's going on. So Boaz shows up to the courtroom. Mr. So-and-so comes by and says, hey, look, we need to talk, and we need witnesses. And he says to him, here's the deal. And he presents his proposition. And basically, here's how I imagine um, Mr. So-and-so hearing this proposition. Okay, our family member, Naomi, has a need. She's poor. Uh, she's also older. The text has already told us that she's beyond childbearing age. So what it means is I put a little money into getting this property, and I care for the woman for the rest of her life. But then what happens when she dies? She has no heir. She won't have a child. So what happens? It's now mine. And it's, this man sees this as a business investment, not as a sacrifice of love. Here's why I know that. Because when Boaz reads the fine print, so to speak, and says, oh, by the way, when you redeem this land, you also get Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Because that, that, Mr. So-and-so steps back and is like, nope, I'm out. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, I don't like Moabites. He doesn't say, well, my wife is not going to be too happy with this proposition, right? He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Because it might endanger my estate. Well, why would it endanger his estate? What's kind of going on here? Ruth is young. Ruth is of childbearing age. And this has all the difference in the world and the motivation. Go with me. Keep your finger here again in Ruth and go back to Deuteronomy 25 this time. In Deuteronomy 25, we hear, beginning of verse 5 and 6, we hear this instruction on what's called the leveret marriages. And we don't normally function this. And there's going to be something about the, the duty of a brother-in-law, which is going to sound really weird to us. So just hear me out and we'll see if we can make sense of this as well. Deuteronomy 25 Verses 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. 
The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Not the duty of the brother-in-law in 2019, right? Not for us. But here's what's going on in this picture. When, when Boaz introduces Ruth into the scenario, everything changes because now Mr. So-and-so looks at it and goes, if I redeem the land and I care for Naomi for a little while, I also get Ruth, which now it's my responsibility to have a child with her, but it's not my offspring. It's not my heir. It's Malon's heir, Ruth's dead husband's heir, in order to provide for his name, which means what? Now I provide for Ruth, and I provide for her children. And then when her first son gets of age, what happens to the property? It's not mine. It goes back to Malon's line, which means what? This is going to cost me. This is not a good investment anymore. This is not benefiting me. This is actually going to cost me quite a bit. Ever think about how easy it is for us to treat people like investments? Are they worth my time? Will I ever see the results out of this? We put stipulations and guards on our love, and we say, I'll love them if they love me back, or I'll love them if they believe what I believe, or I'll love them if it doesn't cost me too much. If it's convenient and easy, the problem is love is always incredibly costly. In fact, if something doesn't cost you, if it's not sacrificial, if it doesn't require you to die to yourself, then there's a good chance it's not actually love. 1 John 3 tells us that we know what love is in this. The definition of love is that Jesus laid down his life for us. Mr. So-and-so looks at this scenario and says, hey, if it helps me, if it benefits me, then, yeah, I'll take it. But that's going to cost too much. So he says, I can't redeem it. You take it. And that's what we kind of all wanted anyways in the story, right? We were all hoping that this guy would say no because we love Boaz and we want Boaz to, Boaz and Ruth are just amazing and we just want them to be together. We just want it to work out this way. And so Boaz says in, in chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12, he says this, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his hometown, I'm sorry, with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And he proudly takes his place as the guardian redeemer. He buys the field and he gains the bride which results in this explosion of praise and blessing over Boaz and Ruth. Step back for a minute and think about Boaz throughout this whole book. Boaz is the man, right? I mean, he really is. He's described as a man of standing, a man well-respected in his community, well-known and well-loved. He's a godly man who obeys the law, even down to leaving margins around his field so that the poor and the foreigner can come and gain food and and be provided for free of charge. He's not only meeting the, the, the bottom line, but he actually goes over and above. He's generous. He looks at someone like Ruth, who is as vulnerable a person in Israel as you could find, a widowed foreign woman. And he says, no, don't, don't glean there. Come and be with my fields. Don't take the leftovers. Come be with me. Come be with my workers. Let them take care of you. I'll care for you. 
And when she comes in a vulnerable position, risking a lot more than we could ever imagine when she proposes to him, he doesn't take advantage of her. In fact, all he does is bless her more. And he has the opportunity that night when she proposes to say, you know what? There's somebody else in line, so why don't you go ahead and ask them first, and if they won't, I will. That's not what he says, is it? Who goes to the, the, to, who goes to the courthouse? Is it Ruth or Naomi? It's Boaz. Actually, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 25, you would find that Naomi and Ruth are the ones who are supposed to go. But Boaz goes for them. He doesn't do the baseline minimum. He goes over and above and he says, your problems are my problems. Your needs are my needs. I'm taking them on myself in order to bless you. And actually, it goes even further than that. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 25 again, the couple of verses we read, I had to confirm this with an Old Testament professor at school to make sure I'm right on this. Boaz didn't need to technically marry her. He's not a brother. This was the responsibility that Malon and Killian had to each other. Boaz had the option. He could have said, I don't have to marry you. But he understood that it's not about the technicalities of the law. He understood it's about the heart of the law as well. And the heart of God is to care for those who are in need. And he sees through the heart and says, I'm not looking for loopholes, I'm looking to love. You guys want a neighbor like this? You want Boaz to live in your neighborhood? I do. Isn't Boaz amazing? He knows it's going to cost him and he goes for it. He's over and above. He does. Boaz is amazing. And as amazing as he is in your mind, you know what that also means? If you look at that and go, that's beautiful, that's right, you know what that also means? That's the standard you know you're to live up to. You know that's your calling. You know that as followers of Christ, we are called to the exact same type of love. Love that we know is going to cost us. Love that takes on the needs of others, making their problems our problems. Loving when it not just a benefit to us or convenient for us, In fact, Christians are to be the ones who are leading the way in caring for the poor and for the foreigner. Christians are the ones who are to be caring for the sick and those in need, for the children who are in foster care, and for those who need adoption. We're to be the ones who are active in our communities for the betterment of our neighbors, the ones to see someone, a stranger in need, and move towards them. We know that that's what we're called to as well. You ever have a family member or a coworker that just has it all put together? That guy that at work that just, you know, he knocks all of his projects out of the park, or that woman who just never seems to do anything wrong, and it's just all perfect, or that family member who everybody loves and just has everything tied up together neatly. And when you're around them, sometimes you can't help but feel a little bit ashamed, a little bit like you don't measure up. That's how I feel with Boaz. I look at Boaz, and I'm like, he's a man. Um... Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm a little bit less like Boaz and I'm a little bit more like Mr. So-and-so. I like to put conditions on my love when it's convenient or doesn't cost too much. Because if we're honest, it's really, really hard to be gracious towards people who are annoying. It's really hard to serve people who aren't very grateful. It's tempting to be generous and hospitable only towards people who can give that back to you where you see a return on your investment. It's tempting to just find the minimum spot and not be over and above in our giving and in our serving, isn't it? 
really, really tempting, and we do it a lot. And so if I look at that and I go, Boaz just puts me to shame, and if I see that about myself, then there's a good chance that's exactly how God feels too, right? Probably ashamed, probably disappointed in me. So many of us approach God. But this story has unbelievably good news for us today. It has such good news in how the story ends because the story is not actually about you. The story is something so much bigger than you. Look at how the story ends. Go to chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Boaz and Ruth come together. They're married. They have a child. And 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women, women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David. If you're reading it for the first time, your mind explodes. Like, I know David. This story is not even about Boaz. This story is about something that is so much bigger than Boaz. This story is about someone greater. It's about David, who is the ideal king, the king to which everyone else is compared to. He's the standard. And it goes on from there. It's better. Because if you were to go to the book of Matthew, while you're still in Ruth 4, look at the last couple of verses. What is it? If you, have a, if you have a text, what is, categorize that? The genealogy, right? That's right. The genealogy. Genealogies don't really fit at the end of books. They usually go in the beginning. But this one's at the end because the little plot twist is in the end. That Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. And if you flip to Matthew chapter 1, what you find is Matthew takes this genealogy and almost word for word inserts it into Matthew chapter 1. To say Boaz is not about Boaz. Boaz is about David. Oh, but where does David's genealogy land? It lands with Jesus. This whole story is not about you. It's not even about Boaz. This story is about a greater reality ending in the person of Christ. It's embedded into a larger story. And the purpose of that story is not to shame you. The story of Scripture, the story of Ruth, is not to embarrass you and to shame you. It's actually to bring you life. It's to free you. It's not even about whether you're a good neighbor or not. It's about the reality that Jesus is the better Boaz. That Jesus is the one who bought the field, knowing it would cost him everything to gain the bride. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I just want to show you one verse. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus says this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And I want to apologize to all of us in the room who have been trained to read that incorrectly. Because most of us read this in similar ways that we read the Good Samaritan, where we've first taken that and made it directly about us. And we take this, and, and oftentimes I've even heard people talk about, well, we're, we have to give up everything in order to get heaven. Number one, heaven is not the prize. Jesus is the prize. There's something really important. You can read this verse and you can miss the gospel. Because before this story, before this verse is about you giving up everything to gain Jesus. It's about Jesus giving up everything to gain you. Before this Good Samaritan is about you caring for someone on the side of the road in need, it's about you being the one on the side of the road in need in whom Jesus comes and cares for as the true and better Samaritan. Before this is about you being a Boaz and showing sacrificial love towards someone else, 
It's first realizing that you are Naomi in desperate need of a protector, a provider, and a redeemer. It's only then, it's only when you first realize you are a recipient of God's neighboring love towards you that you become transformed. Because the truth is that the better Boaz, Jesus looked down and saw us in need, helpless and desperately lost in our wickedness, homeless, hungry, in need of provision and protection. And he looked ahead and he knew exactly what it would cost him. And in his joy, he sold everything. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He sold everything to buy the field, to gain what prize? This is where it's really humbling. The prize that he gave himself for is us. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And do you know what Jesus calls his people? His bride. He sold, he bought the field, costing everything to gain the bride. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And by faith, you and I are united with Jesus so that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His goodness becomes our goodness. His love for others becomes ours. His man, his place of standing becomes our place of standing. And Hebrews 2 goes on to say that both the one who makes people holy, who is Jesus, and those who are made holy, which is us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed, even of our lack of love for our neighbor. There is grace there. That is the mystery of grace, is that we are not treated the way we deserve, but we are shown kindness and mercy beyond anything we could imagine. And as you experience the love of a guardian redeemer who would give himself for you, knowing it would cost him everything, what you find is that begins to change you. Creates a lo- it awakens love in you in return. And we become those who, because of what we've received, become those who, who are willing to sell everything to gain our groom, to gain Jesus, to gain more of him. Let's take it full circle again, back to Boaz. This is where Jesus is the better Boaz, though. Because Boaz stood against us as an example, right? Someone that we look at and go, you're amazing and I'm not. But this is where Jesus is better. Because not only is he an example, but he's more than that. Did you catch what Titus says that Jesus did with his death and his resurrection and by his spirit? He doesn't just create a people, he does something else. He purifies a people. Which means that when the grace of Christ meets you, it meets you where you are, but it does not leave you where you are. It begins to transform you and purify you and change you. And he makes you into a people who are eager to do good works, eager to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we keep coming back to Jesus over and over and again and saying, Jesus, here's where I am. Take me, change me, make me like yourself. Because it's in Christ that we find the motivation and the power to be what Christ has called us to be, which is those who are eager to love our neighbor as ourselves, out of the love we've received. To summarize kind of our whole sermon series in one short little phrase, 
Martin Luther says this. He says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbors do. The message, we have received grace and love. May that transform us to be a people who do the same to those around us. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and we are undeserving. You are merciful and we are thankful for that. You are gracious and we are so thankful that you don't treat us the way that we deserve, but you actually give us the righteousness that Jesus, you earned. And you are making us a people You are purifying us so that one day we will be a bride that stands before you spotless, dressed in white. Lord, make that true. And as we wait, would you, we don't want to wait. We want you to begin that process now and you've already promised that. You've promised that you've begun a work and you will complete it. So Jesus, take us, remind us of your love and change us and make us a people who are eager to do good works, eager to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray that for your glory and we pray that for our good and for our joy for the blessing of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.